0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, thank you guys again. Um, really g- great to be back. I've been out for three weeks, um, took a couple of uh, hilltop trips, kayak trips, discipleship trips, whatever you want to call them trips. And, um, and, and when I was gone, by the way, we finished up uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. I don't, I don't know if you knew that or not, but Hayden finished it up last week. I was actually here on Sunday last week. He did a great job. If you didn't get to hear him wrap it all up, you you should hear it. And and today we are starting our, our annual kind of a recasting of vision for Grace Bible Church. It's it's every August we do a series on disciple making. And and we exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. So this is this is kind of like, hey, let let's not forget it. Hopefully we're talking about disciple making like all 12 months of the year, but this is Dedicated time to that end. I would say that we're starting today, but Donald Avant on Thursday night concluded our Thursday night Bible study series with a, a great sermon on disciple making. So if, if you missed that, go listen to it. I, I thought he crushed it. It was so fun, and, and Thursday night Bible study overall was a ton of fun this year. Uh, I'm so proud of all those guys. Uh, anyway, new sermon series. It's this Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4 and Romans chapter 6. Uh, let me pray and we will turn our attention to God's Word. Bow your heads with me. Father, you are so gracious and kind to us and Lord, I know that we take your grace for granted and, and I ask your forgiveness for my part in that. And I, I on behalf of my friends, I think we can all corporately confess that we take your grace for granted Um, father your grace is immense it is beyond in goodness and scope what we can even really conceive of even if we tried hard Uh, i pray that you'd give us a, a greater glimpse into the transformational nature of your grace I pray, God, that we would delight to be your children as a result of this time. I pray that we would live lives that reflect the gospel more fully as a result of this time. And God, I I just pray that we would live in the freedom that you envisioned when you sent your son to die for us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to start with a question today, and I think it's kind of a fun question. Here it is. Do you think that Jesus mounted a cross at Calvary do you think that when he mounted that cross he did so to procure for himself a bunch of Christians or a bunch of disciples when Jesus mounted the cross when when he willingly got up on the cross and died a sinner's death was he doing so to to procure for himself a bunch of people who would call themselves Christians or a bunch of people who would be disciples of his followers of, of his what was he trying to do there? Some of you are probably already objecting to the question, and, and, and I get it. You're, you're thinking to yourself, hey, there's no distinction between a disciple and a Christian. If you are a true Christian, you are a disciple. And, and if you are a disciple, you are a Christian. And so th- these, this distinction kind of falls in on itself, and you've probably come to that conclusion. You're kind of bugged that I asked the question, and, and if you are, I'm proud of you. Because I think you got the right answer. The reason I ask that question isn't to bug you, but just to address something that I think a lot of us live with. This this question kind of running in the background of our brain's operating system. And it's something like, how critical is being a disciple? And by the way, if you're a disciple and you're a faithful disciple, you're making disciples. How critical is being a disciple to my salvation? It's a question that you should be asking because the reality is, You hear two messages that can be seen in contradiction from this pulpit. You you hear the message sometimes that that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That is true. That is 100% true. We are not a church that believes in a salvation that is by grace plus works or anything like that. Hear it very clearly. You will hear from this pulpit early and often and today and tomorrow We believe in a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, so no man can boast. But then you're also going to hear from this very same pulpit that every one of us should be going out and making disciples. And you're like, well, wait a second. If I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, why are you telling me to do all this stuff? And and what is the relationship between my salvation that is apart from works and this work that you're constantly asking me to do? That's the question That some of you are asking. And as we recruit small group volunteers, and as we just generally say all of you should be going out and doing the work of ministry, that question comes maybe a little bit more to the forefront. What's the relationship between my salvation, which is not by works, and this work that the pastors of Grace Bible Church are always calling us to do? What exactly is the relationship between the gospel? that I have believed, and disciple-making. That's the question we're asking as we start this month look at disciple-making. What exactly is the relationship between the gospel and the Great Commission? Here's the deal. And you've got to understand this. It's impossible to answer that question, what is the relationship between the gospel and the Great Commission, without first defining the gospel, because the gospel, people talk about the gospel all the time, and, and they're talking about a variety of different things, and nobody has a real buttoned-up definition of the gospel. So we've got to first define the gospel. Most most people understand the gospel as a set of historic claims that people can give cognitive affirmation to or reject. And, and so it's something like this. This will be Close. It's not going to be perfect. Don't criticize my articulation of the gospel. It's it's going to be something like God became incarnate. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus, being God, lived a perfect and impeccable without sin life, but died a death on the cross of Calvary in the Roman Empire, a sin or a, a death not for his own sin, because he was impeccable, he was perfect, but he died a sinner's death so that we who are sinners and who would believe in him might not perish and spend eternity in hell, but would instead escape that condemnation, and we would live forever under the unconditional love and in the beautiful, glorious presence of God in heaven forever. Something along those lines. That, that would be the gospel. And so we present that and, and people either believe it or they reject it. And, and they go to heaven if they believe it. And they go to hell if they don't believe it. And that's, that's the gospel that most of us have grown up with. It's a gospel that drives toward escaping hell and going to heaven by grace through faith alone in Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. I, everything about that is right. That understanding isn't complete. But it's really popular. It's really popular. It, it's, it's, I, most of you probably didn't object to that. Most of you probably didn't say, well, that's just not enough, West. You, you don't think that. It, it's very popular. And the reason it's very popular, by the way, is because two of my heroes made it popular. Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, he loved disciple making. And, and you know that because his ministry had a lot of curriculum oriented toward disciple making. Some of you grew up in Crew or in Campus Crusade for Christ, if you're older like me. And and you went through some sort of disciple-making curriculum with, with one of the crew staff persons or you know an, an upperclassman. So he, he loved it. But he also had a gospel tract. Anybody heard of the four spiritual laws? Raise your hands. So, yeah, a whole bunch of you. It, it's called a gospel tract, right? It's not a disciple making tract, it, 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 it seems to be bifurcated from his disciple making curriculum. And, and it's God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You're wrecked because of your sin. Jesus came and died on a cross to to bridge the gap basically between a holy God and a sinful humanity, believe in him and escape the perils of hell and and go to heaven. It's called the gospel. It's a gospel tract. Does Bill Bright just believe that they're separated? No. It's just that the four spiritual laws was gospel tract and these were disciple-making tracts and we wonder how they fit together. Billy Graham was the same way. Billy Graham is one of my life heroes. I, I think he, he did it right. Like his whole life, he did it right. I, so gracious, so clear, stayed true to his vision and his mission and his giftedness. I love Billy Graham. Billy Graham was an evangelist, right? Everybody knows that. He, he had these crusades. If, if, if you're a little bit older, you probably saw a Billy Graham crusade, even in person or on television. And, and Billy Graham would present the gospel and people would walk down stadium aisles to receive Christ, and then the lights would go out. And so Billy Graham, as an evangelist, was was known as someone who proclaimed the gospel. What what you don't know is that Billy Graham loved disciple-making. He saw the gospel, the articulation of, of the forgiveness element of the gospel and the followership of the gospel as integrated. He had a guy on his staff named Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. The Master Plan of Evangelism is a book about disciple-making. Robert Coleman would go to wherever the Billy Graham Crusade was taking place six months prior to its start, and he would work with churches so that they had a plan for integrating all the people who walked the aisle that they might be plugged into churches and be discipled. The problem is, when the lights and the cameras went on for the Billy Graham Crusade and people walked the aisles, They never heard about Robert Coleman. They turned the cameras off before they integrated people into the churches. So nobody really knew that the gospel had a ramification orienting toward disciple-making because they never saw that on television. And and so you had this bifurcation. You've got a, a message to escape hell and go to heaven proclaimed by Bill Bright and Billy Graham and then you've got this discipleship stuff over here, but, but you don't know how they get connected. It's like this, it's what I call the forgiveness only gospel. Like you, you believe in Jesus to be forgiven so you can escape hell, go to heaven. But there's a fundamental pro- problem. There's a, there's a fundamental flaw in this gospel, and it leads to a lot of other problems. First of all, one of the real problems is it leads to this Christian Platonism, and and Platonism just is a fancy way of saying it's an expression of Plato's philosophy in Christianity, and Plato was fine in a lot of ways, but don't don't mix Plato up with Jesus. It, it doesn't go well. Christian Platonism is is this idea that the material of this world is, is kind of base or evil, and and Plato always wanted to transcend the material, and he wanted to get to the metaphysical, and he was looking for forms rather than material expressions of the forms, and it was just kind of what he was really into, and Christians can do that too, and they, they can start thinking, well, I'm a Christian, but, but I'm a Platonist you know, as as an expression of my Christianity and so I'm I'm not really about the physical world I I want to escape the physical world I want to escape hell I want to escape earth I want to go to heaven and and so you, you kind of disconnect a little bit and it becomes a very strange thing Plato basically thought the world was shabby and so the goal was to escape this world a lot of Christians think that too it becomes really weird look here's the deal hopefully I'm not Boring it too terribly. If the goal of the gospel is just escape, like if that's the goal, like to escape hell so that we might go to heaven, if the goal is only escape, then everything after we believe becomes kind of like an optional interim. Like, I've already believed the gospel, I'm already going to heaven. Well, what do I do with the rest of my life? It doesn't really matter. Because you're still going to heaven. And 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 so, like, should I go to church? You can. Should, should I read my Bible? I mean, I guess. Like, should, should I share my faith in Jesus? Doesn't really matter. You're still going to heaven. You see how everything becomes very optional in the interim? Like, I, I've, I've already gotten the gospel. I, like, that is, I've, I've been forgiven. I've been assured of my salvation. My destination is secure. Everything else is like an optional Interim. And it, tell me you don't think that when, when we say, hey, live your life for Christ, give your life away. You're like, I mean, I guess, but, but I don't know that I really have to. Now, I'm not saying you have to because your salvation depends on it. That's not what I'm saying. But, but is there some correlation? Is there there's some interaction between the gospel we live or the gospel we believe and the life we live? Like Is there any sort of tethering? If if the gospel is only about forgiveness and we already have forgiveness, isn't that a way of sanctifying spiritual passivity? Like what? Why would we do the things that God calls us to do? Again, I'm not saying we do them to earn salvation, but why does God even say we need to do them if the ultimate goal's already been realized. It's a question that a lot of people have. It reminds me of a, a lady that I met in my 20s named Mary Shaw. Mary Shaw was a delightful older lady at the time. She had worked for decades for Wycliffe Bible translation. And so she was a, a Wycliffe Bible translator um, missionary, and, and she she spent, I think, several decades of her life in Papua New Guinea. And she she was kind of out on a, a... I mean, she was a bit of a pioneer, right? She she was out there on the, you know, sort of the tip of the spear type deal, and, and she was in this village, and she was translating the Bible into the dialect of this village. And she didn't really know the language that well, and so she she hired a guy, and this was not his real name, but this is what Mary Shaw called him. I'm glad she called him this. She called him Sam. So So Sam was... Part of the indigenous people that made up this village of Papua New Guinea, and he spoke the, the language there really well. He he was fantastic. He was he was a young guy. He was he was 25-ish. He was very healthy, he was very vigorous, he, he spoke the, the language really well. He also somehow spoke English. And so he and Mary Shaw were working very close together. It was just the two of them in this this hut every day. Now Sam was outstanding. Mary Shaw told me about this. He was he was so great with one singular problem. Sam, from Papua New Guinea, wore what was customary for men to wear in Papua New Guinea, which was like a little loincloth. And Mary Shaw didn't like that at all, right? She's she's like a 40-year-old woman, and and here's this 25-year-old guy, nothing but a a loincloth. It basically like one of you people coming to work in a thong or something. I mean, it's just terrible, right? And she, she doesn't know where to look, and I mean, it's embarrassing. I, I get that she's a missionary, and she's, her heart's as pure as the driven snow, but he's got a, a loincloth on, and that's, that's uncomfortable. And so what is Mary to do? What is Mary? I, I pose that question to you, my friend. What should she as a missionary do? If she imposes her culture on Sam, she's the ugly American. but But then, she also doesn't want to spend the next decade with a guy in a loincloth either. So, what do you do? Mary came up with a pretty good solution. She decided that she was going to give Sam a pair of khaki shorts for Christmas. And so, Christmas time comes, and every missionary has a pair of khaki shorts, and, and she gets one for Sam, and she gives and makes it a big deal and says, Sam, this is your Christmas present. We love you here it is. And Sam opens it up and he looks at these khaki shorts and he's just overwhelmed. He's like, oh my gosh, nobody's ever given me any present like this. I cannot wait to wear these into work tomorrow. And Mary Shaw, of course, quietly is thinking, I can't wait for you to wear them into work tomorrow so that I don't have to look at your loincloth. She thinks it's a problem solved and she hasn't been the ugly American. This is a, a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Sam comes in the next morning and he is wearing his shorts on his head. <laughs> Problem was not solved, not even close to solved. Mary Shaw's example reminds me of two important things. I'd like to share them with you. The first is just the importance of the gospel. Mary Shaw, as a person, this, isn't, I mean, this is part of the deal, she moved across the world to translate the Bible so that people could hear the good news of the gospel in their own language. And that that is noteworthy, that is admirable. We should all consider doing things like that. We really should. If the gospel is what we think it is, we should spare no expense. We should get out there with the gospel. That's the first thing. The the other thing that Mary Shaw's example taught me is the danger of misappropriation. A pair of khaki shorts is a wonderful thing when used correctly when you put a pair of khaki shorts on your head the benefit and the design of said khaki shorts is kind of lost right i want you to remember that just there is a danger in misappropriation what if the gospel what if the gospel is designed for something more than simply forgiveness and assurance. You ever thought, I I get that we're familiar with that gospel, but what if it's meant to give us more than forgiveness and assurance? Now, to be clear, the gospel, because of the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary, does give us forgiveness and assurance. But what if the gospel was always intended to give us more than just forgiveness and assurance? What if, for instance, The gospel is the good news that a good king named Jesus came to rescue the world from the devastating effect of the fall, and that he has, in his grace, invited the redeemed, those who have been saved by grace through faith alone, into this rescue mission. What if that's part of the gospel? What? What if that is part of the gospel and that part of the gospel starts to define your life after believing and before God whisks you to heaven, that you've been not only redeemed but been commissioned to proclaim redemption? Let me take it a step further. What if the gospel is, at least in part, the Spirit of God indwelling us, making us new creations in Christ, and reversing the curse of the fall, thereby enabling us to live fully human lives. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what if that is part of the intent, and and the Holy Spirit indwelling us and making us new creations enables us to live fully human lives, To, to live in the freedom that God originally designed for us that we have only had glimpses of because we are so hamstrung by our own depravity. If, look, if, if any of this is true, wouldn't it be an incredibly sad miss to say the gospel is just fire insurance? To say the gospel like delivers me from hell and to heaven but, but doesn't really do anything for the interim after believing and going to heaven, like we are just kind of the same and everything else is some sort of optional interim? wouldn 't that be tragic if, if the gospel was meant for so much more and we saw it as so much less that that to me seems so sad fire insurance get out of jail free, but nothing else isn't, isn't that like wearing shorts on our head it's a gross misappropriation of something good that God designed for for something greater? Like I I think about y'all. As the pastor of Grace Bible Church, I look out and and I try to imagine y'all all all wearing shorts on your head. And that's the equivalent of y'all believing that the gospel is just about forgiveness and delivering to heaven. It's a misappropriation. And I look out and I look at y'all and I'm like, man, y'all look dumb. Really dumb. Don't, don't wear shorts on your head. That's the great application. Believe in the fullness of the gospel. Watch how God's word talks about a better gospel, a, a, a more holistic, more transformational gospel that dignifies life between belief and heaven. Turn, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're just going to read in part. But Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is right after his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Okay. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then immediately after that, verse 18 through 22, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, after Jesus has come and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will actually make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, now, immediately after that, so you've got repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, follow me, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then immediately after that, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Let me summarize just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from this world. Turn from this world because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because the king of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came. Jesus the king says repent for I've come and and my kingdom comes with me because I'm that kind of king turn from the world because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then he says follow the king and he will make you greater than you ever could have been on your own follow me and I will make you fishers not of fish but of men that is more significant repent Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And everyone starts to follow. And then the next thing he says is, this is the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, I'm going to quiz you here. It's very simple. In Matthew chapter 4, has Jesus been crucified yet? It's a stunning silence. I'm going to wait. No, thank you so much. Good gracious. It's, it's chapter 4. What do you think is going to happen in the rest of the book? He has not been crucified. Now, isn't the forgiveness of sins, I think you know your theology, premised on Jesus dying on the cross? Yes, thank you. So, we're talking about a gospel of the kingdom before the cross. In fact... Jesus uses the word gospel 12 times in the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. He uses the word gospel 12 times. 11 of those 12 times, it's before the crucifixion. Before the basis for forgiveness. So he's talking about a gospel that obviously, I'm not saying it doesn't include forgiveness, but it includes something other than forgiveness because otherwise he couldn't talk about the gospel. It's just chronologically, that's what we know. And and so, what is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is as much, I promise you, about follow me and I will make you fishers of men as it is about be forgiven. I'm not saying be forgiven isn't in there. It's obviously a huge part of it. I'm, I'm for forgiveness in the gospel By the shed blood of Jesus. I I promise I'm not a heretic here. I'm just saying he talks about the gospel a lot before the basis of forgiveness has been accomplished or applied. It's something you got to reckon with. The gospel is as much about follow me as it is about be forgiven. In fact, be forgiven happens so that we can follow him. You might be asking, well, wait, wait a second. I'm not sure I totally get how we can follow him. You might even be thinking to yourself, I'm a sinner. I, can I follow Jesus? Romans 6 gives you that answer. Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Now, Paul is raising a question here, and what shall we say then? Because he has just in Romans chapter 5 laid out a very compelling argument that our salvation is wholly based in the finished work of Jesus, and, and Jesus was the second Adam, and, and Jesus by our affiliation with him reverses the curse of our affiliation with Adam, the first Adam, that left us dead in our sins. And so he's like, by representation, you're either in Adam or you're in Jesus, and you're either condemned or you're saved. And he raises this question, Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? If it's all based on what Jesus did, why don't we have license to sin? Why don't we just keep sinning because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Why aren't we living as full-blown, unapologetic hypocrites? That's the question he's asking. That is absolutely the question he's asking. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. Meganointa the Greek term. It's like, God forbid, no way. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that might seem weird, baptized into means totally identified with Christ Jesus? Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized, totally identified into Christ Jesus, were baptized, totally identified with him in his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. One of my favorite Greek words, it's kainos. Kainos, newness, means of a different sort, not just another life, it's a qualitatively different life. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. When he died, we died. When he resurrected, we resurrected, therefore leaving us with kainos life, of a different sort life. Verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Isn't that good news? For one who has died has been set free from sin. I promise you that's great news. Now, if we have died with Christ... It's a lot. It's 11 verses. It's a whole lot of theology. I'm going to give you a summary statement. The the summary of verses 1 through 11. Grace doesn't enable us to sin with impunity, with no consequence. Grace doesn't enable us to sin with impunity. Grace actually transforms us by our union with Christ, our old self that was enslaved to sin. When Jesus died, it died with him. And when Jesus was resurrected, we got a new life. We are new creations in Christ set apart for his good works. That's Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Grace doesn't enable us to continue to sin. It transforms our lives by our union with Jesus. And maybe you missed some of this. Let me go through the good news of Romans chapter 6. We're no longer dead. Isn't that good news? Like it it really beats the alternative, right? And can, can we at least acknowledge that? We're no longer dead. We were dead, and we're not dead anymore. That's really good news. But it goes on. Could there be more? Yes, much, much more. We're no longer slaves. The text says that we were enslaved to sin and we are no longer enslaved to sin. In fact, it goes on and it says, We have been set free. Now, I think if I pulled 10 of you as a representative sample and I said, Would you rather be a slave or free? Nine out of 10 of you would say, I'd rather be free. Thank you very much. Right? That's good news. We're no longer dead. We're no longer slaves. We've been set free. And then it goes on in the very last verse to say, we are alive to God, which is significant because at one point we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were considered objects of wrath. This is Ephesians chapter two. The sinful mind was hostile to God. It could not please God. It would not please God. It was death. That's Romans chapter eight. Jesus goes on and says way worse things than that about what we were apart from God's grace. And, and so the fact that we are alive to God, isn't that the gospel? The gospel means good news. It isn't, isn't that the ramification? Like, yes, forgiveness, but yes to transformational grace. It's all part of the gospel. It's, it's all really good news. The gospel reverses the curse. It reverses the consequence of the fall. The, the fall, the curse, had to do with sin. And, and sin led to separation. And separation led to incredible insecurity because Adam and Eve didn't have enough hands to cover over their private parts. And, and so sin leads to separation, leads to insecurity, and, and basically Jesus reverses all of that. So it, we're, we're no longer dead in our sins we are no longer separated from god and if we've understood the gospel and this is my prayer for everybody at grace bible church we live in the security of our salvation we know the unconditional love of god that that changes how we go out this week into work into recreation into everything think about your life unhindered by insecurity like can, can you even imagine it and that is exactly what god intended When he sent Jesus to die, to procure for himself disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. That is the fully human life. It is a life marked by freedom. A life marked by security. A life marked by joy. That enables us, after we have believed and before we go to heaven to invest in that freedom, in that security, in that joy, to invest lovingly, joyfully, sacrificially in the people who God puts in our paths. That could be at work, that could be at church, that could be in your small group, it could be almost anywhere, but I promise they're there so that we might be signposts to the kingdom's nearness in a world that desperately, desperately needs to know that the kingdom is at hand. What holds you back from that life? Why are you living like an unredeemed person? Why aren't you experiencing the fullness of your salvation? Why are you living in fear? Why are you living in insecurity? Why haven't you understood that Jesus has reversed the curse? What holds you back from that? What are you clutching on to? That would rob you of that which God has offered you. Last week I got home from two back-to-back hilltop adventure trips. I took people out, whitewater kayaking. The first week we were out with a bunch of single folks, 24 to 31-year-olds, and with the exception of the seedmans, who were great and were friends with all the single folks, it was all a bunch of single people. And super fun, super athletic. They could not roll a kayak to save their lives. Strangest thing in the world. Could not figure that out. But they were great. I loved them. I'll take them back any time. So much fun. There were 15 of us on that trip. The next week, we took a bunch of married couples, they, ages 24 to 63. I, it surprised me like how much fun that group was, how they, they cared for each other and loved each other, how much better they were at rolling a kayak than the singles group. Like, it, I'm like, what is wrong with these people? 14 of us on that trip, 29 total people on this trip. Now, we go through a curriculum. We don't just kayak and scare people on a river. Um... We go through this kayak, and and one of the exercises, and and some of them are right over here, they can testify to this. One of the exercises, you you break your life into chapters, and at at the bottom of this chapter, you you go, who are your heroes in this time? And you've got between three and five chapters in your life, and you you write down one or two heroes during those periods of time. So everyone's going to have between three and ten heroes that they've had in the course of their life. And I asked in our group discussions, I, I asked all 29 people, I I wanted them to talk about one hero, one hero each. And and they they were supposed to talk about who the hero was and what they did to be considered a hero in each of those 29 people's lives. So you get it? 29 people, they're talking about the hero, the most distinct, relevant hero in their lives. 29 Christians talking about this. I took some notes. I I took careful notes on the type of hero that was mentioned. One hero per person. 29 heroes. Two of the 29 were professional Christians. Meaning they worked in ministry. They, they, They gained a check for their ministry. Two of them were professional Christians. Not one of the 29 went to seminary. So if you're thinking... I can't disciple people. I can't invest in people because I haven't gone to seminary. You've either believed a lie or you've created a lie. But it's a lie. That's just wrong. And and that, that is proven out on all of these trips. People's heroes aren't up on stages. In fact, none went to seminary. Not one of the 29 heroes, not one, was famous. I'm not talking like national famous. I'm not talking regional famous. I'm not talking local famous. You never heard of them. Like that. nobody of the 29 heroes were well-known people. It was 29 really normal people. Just sometimes normal's a huge compliment it was 29 normal people who were willing to be signposts for the kingdom of God in how they loved people and how they invested in people and how they showed up in hard times. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and immediately after that he finds some normal fishermen and he says follow me and I will make you fishers of men and they drop their nets and they follow him and then he goes around and he says this is the gospel of the kingdom before he's died on a cross It's a bunch of normal people following Jesus and investing in other people and saying, we found the Christ. Come take a look. Jesus says, repent. He says, follow me. And that is exactly what God is calling you to do. Today and every day he gives you until he takes you home exactly what he's calling you to do. And by the way, that is exactly what he has already enabled you to do if you're a Christian. That's what Romans 6 is all about. That's what he's called you to do. That's what he's enabled you to do. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. The king has come near. He has said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And I've enabled you to do so. That's the gospel. What would you rather pursue than that? Just know that if you pursue that, you're wearing shorts on your head, man. It's a dumb look. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to believe that your gospel is much more holistic than we would have imagined. It's much more glorious than we have imagined. And it is an invitation, really it's a commandment into participation in your kingdom purposes. Father, I pray that we would give you all credit for our salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But Father, that salvation has enabled us to participate. And so God, I pray that we would do so and I pray that we would find joy in the doing so. I pray God that you would make us look like signposts that your kingdom is at hand. And I pray that we would glorify you at every turn and that we would celebrate the life that you've called us to. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.